Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I'm continuing my mini-series on fascism and the environment. In the previous installment of this mini-series, I talked about fascism and the environment in a sort of like generalized sense. In this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more about specific policies that the two most powerful fascist countries in history, that is fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, engaged in during their you know tenure in national power. Next week, as the continuation of this mini-series, I will be airing an interview, which I conducted with Professor Diana Gavin, who is a specialist on Italian fascist policies regarding the lived environment, the environment per se, and also gender. So I'm going to start out with Italy, uh, although, like I said, there will be more content on the Italian fascist environmental policies next week. Italy's fascist environmental policies centered on the colonization or reclamation of empty or useless space. A lot of that centered on their desire to make that space, you know, uh, exploitable, either in a natural environmentalist sense, you know, like, like that there were resources that they wanted to be able to use there, or preserving space for the use of tourists. A lot of this had to do with, like I said, marshland reclamation, which was a project that also linked the Italian fascist experience and uh, experiment back to Roman times, because uh, Roman civil engineers also drained marshes and swamps in order to make them places where people could live as well. Uh, the idea here was a remaking of nature in the image that fascists had of nature, that nature was something that could be ordered. There was a distinction between productive nature, which was good, and wild nature, which was bad. Uh, there was an emphasis on farmers and the rural. That is something that we'll see time and time again as we talk about fascism and the environment. When they're talking about the environment, they're not necessarily talking about like the, you know, the untrammeled wilds. They're more talking about places where rural people can be rural people, you know, places where farmers can be farmers and mountaineers can be mountaineers, because those are the kinds of people that they want to have in their country. Key to this in the Italian case was reforestation, the idea that the mountains and the forests of Italy had to be filled in order to be useful, and they needed to be ordered so that Italians could benefit from them. Another thing that the Italian Fascist Party did, which might surprise some listeners, is that they established Italy's first national parks. They established uh, four national parks over the course of the Italian National Fascist Experiment. Two of them, for example, are Cicero National Park, which was extremely near Rhone, and uh, Stelvio Park, which was actually quite far away in northern Italy. In both of these cases, these parks were chosen because of having emblematic big animals there, you know, like like animals that were emblematic of the fascist concept of what Italy was supposed to be, you know, like how Italians were supposed to be and think about themselves. Uh, however, these parks were not national parks in the way that you might be familiar with if you're uh, from the United States or Canada or many other countries that have established national conservation regimes. Instead, these parks were specifically designed to unite conservation and tourism, you know, not using tourism as a sort of like, okay, well, yeah, the conservationists agree that people need to be able to see these things because that's the reason that we're conserving them. And also this is how we make our revenue. But like the idea was that these places could be, could have order brought to them by the Italians visiting them. 
They were also never protected in a truly meaningful sense uh, because hunting and fishing and other types of natural exploitation were never really prohibited in these parks, uh, which means that they were, you know, national parks possibly in an, in an arguable sense, not quite right. In Germany, the Nazis were a little bit more explicitly environmentalist in many ways. Uh, however, because of the relatively short nature of that regime, you know, Nazi Germany only lasts a little bit over 10 years as opposed to fascist Italy, which lasts almost, you know, 25. Nazi Germany, however, was among the first countries in the world to pass a sweeping modern environmentalist protection law, uh, which was called the Reich Nature Protection Law of 1935. Recall that the German Nazis took power in 1933, so this law was passed, you know, just a couple years after that. However, the law itself did originate before 1933, like it was being debated and uh, argued and organized, written before 1933, which means that, you know, it wasn't exactly the Nazis who who wrote it, a Nazi ideologue did not create this law. However, it was the Nazis that passed it and at least started to implement it. The Reich Nature Protection Law was actually pretty serious. You know, it had some uh, natural protection laws, it had some hunting quotas, it had stuff like that. It also had relatively modern air pollution laws. However, the story of Nazi environmentalism is that as World War II came to dominate German politics, environmentalism fell by the wayside. And a lot of these protections were, you know, uh, really only honored in the sense that people recognized that they needed to be broken in order to maintain the nation's productiveness and in order to maintain the nation's ability to fulfill its political and, uh, you know, environmental destiny. German environmentalism was deeply and intimately connected to uh, Volkish ideology, uh, W-V-O-K-I-S-H um, ideology. The idea here is that Germans need not just empty space, you know, they don't just need Lebensraum in order to become the kinds of people that Nazis want them to be. They need specific German spaces. They need Germany in order to be Germans. And that was the reason that the Nazi Germans actually elected to try to protect their natural resources and their environment. Not because they thought that they were beautiful, or because that they thought that they were inherent goods in and of themselves, but because they thought that it created good German people. And this is something that I talked about in the previous episode. Arguably, this is related to the romantic origins of some of the nationalism that Nazism fed off of. Uh, romantic notions from the 19th century about the beauty of the environmental world or about the inherent usefulness of having natural awe in order to inspire people to, to recognize, you know, how small and insignificant they are in the face of the works of God or in the face of how beautiful and wonderful and awe-inspiring their nation is. The idea was that Germany needed to protect the environment not because of what it was in itself, but because it of what it meant for the culture of Germans. So in Nazi Germany, the soldiers of Germany actually planted a significant amount of trees and were a major force in forestry management and in the maintenance of, you know, forestry resources in Germany. This was something that was also very important to the Italian case. This wasn't because they wanted to turn Germany into a tree farm. It was because they believed that Germans could benefit from having, you know, big, wild forests to lose themselves in, you know, to be, to be manly men in. 
some important German, that is specifically Nazi environmentalist and conservationist figures, uh, or a person named Feder. Uh, he was a Nazi economist, and he actually was giving the lecture, the lecture that Adolf Hitler walked in on when he attended his first German Workers' Party. This is before the party was renamed to be the Nazi Party. He was So Feder was giving the lecture that Hitler walked in on when he decided to join the party as opposed to just uh, spying on it on behalf of the German state, as he was originally doing. Feder continued in his role as essentially the Nazis' chief economist and chief sort of environmental guy throughout much of the early period of the Nazi regime. Um, however, he was eventually pushed out as the Nazi party solidified increasingly and as their access to the reins of power really increased. Uh, in the early 1930s, he and a lot of the other more radical Nazis were purged. Uh, Feder was not killed. He was just sort of ousted. This is something that was happening to a lot of some of the more, like I said, radical Nazis at the time, because early on, the Nazi party was divided essentially between people who were uh, somewhat murderous conservatives, you know, extreme anti-communist partisans, and people who were somewhat more radical anti-capitalists, you know, Nazis who really thought that they absolutely truly needed to completely reorganize all of German society, maybe destroy all of the big banks and government connections to industry and all of that kind of stuff, uh, those people were purged as the existing conservative business elite collaborated with the other sort of more moderate wing of the Nazi party, which was headed by Adolf Hitler. After this, Feder was replaced by Schonin, uh, a Nazi conservationist who considered nature to be a national task uh, equal to any other facing the party and state. Uh, what this meant was that unlike Feder, who believed that nature could be or must be preserved in and of itself in the interests of creating a much better and potentially post-capitalist world, um, Shonenchen believed in a somewhat more collaborationist way of dealing with nature. He thought that nature could be exploited and used and ordered, that it could be part of the you know German war machine. One of his more radical and interesting transformations, though, was that he lobbied for and successfully got a lot of billboards removed from the Autobahn, uh, from the German highway system, because he thought that they, uh, you know, they obstructed people's view of nature. And he thought that they were Jewish. You know, he was an anti-Semite like any other, any other good Nazi. So he thought that billboards were like emblematic of Jewish infection of the nation and of, you know, untrammeled natural views. So again, the important things here when we're talking about fascist and Nazi environmental policies are that these policies were about preserving nature for use. All of the policies that I've talked about here in this episode, reforestation, reclamation of supposedly useless land like marshes, uh, the idea that people need the nation in order to be the nation. Uh, these are all instrumentalist ways of thinking about nature. And that was how these Italian and German fascists thought about nature. They thought that nature was something that they needed in order to exist, not something that was useful or valuable or, you know, sacred in and of itself which is a different kind of environmentalism that was not really present in the fascist environmental experiment. Another important difference between 
fascist environmentalism and contemporary environmentalism is that the fascists thought about their nature only in national or even extremely parochial terms, as opposed to acknowledging that nature and the environment are inherently global or at least regional, you know, that they have nothing to do with borders or nation except insofar as, you know, that determines what the laws are and what kinds of protections are, you know, really legitimately possible or, you know, that, that, that we could imagine or try to pass, right? As opposed to this, the nationalists, these German and Italian nationalists, thought about the environment exclusively in national senses. They thought that the purpose of preserving Italian nature was to preserve and reproduce Italian people, and the same in the German case. All right, like I said, next week I'm going to be continuing this little mini-series with an interview with Professor Diana Garvin, who works on fascist environmentalism and gender in the Italian case. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell your friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also how you can reach me on Twitter at fascism15. So that's 15 spelled out like a word, uh, fascism15. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. You can also reach me on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.